I'm pressing on the upward way New heights I'm gaining every day Still praying as I'm onward bound Lord, plant my feet on higher ground Lord, lift me up, Lord, lift me up and let me stand But faith on Catch a gleam of glory bright But still I'll pray till heaven I found Lord, lead me on to higher ground Lord, let me on Today's sermon is pre-recorded. The title of today's message, You Must Call on the Name of the Lord. You Must Call on the Name of the Lord. Almighty God, would you quicken us now by your Holy Spirit? Lord, I don't know why, but There's such a somber, dead feel to this fellowship today. I don't know why, Lord, but I ask that your spirit come and bring a change in the atmosphere of this church, and I come calling upon the name of the Lord to fill us with your Holy Spirit, to take away all discouragement, all hopelessness, all unbelief, Lord, would you come and change what's happening in this church? Would you breathe into us the breath of life? And we will worship you. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen. There was a firebrand by the name of Saul. He was capturing by force... Christians traveling to foreign cities, even outside of Israel, and bringing them back bound in chains to be tried before the tribunal 
before the Sanhedrin. And there, this firebrand would call for their death. They would be forced to blaspheme the name of Jesus. And if they refused to blaspheme his name, they would be stoned to death. Saul would cast his vote always in favor of execution. This firebrand was well-educated under the very famous Gamal, a very learned rabbi. He was a man of the law. He lived in perfect accord with the law of the Old Covenant. He was faultless in the observance of the law, except for one thing. He hated those who disagreed, and he was filled with pride. He was filled with self-sufficiency. The Lord looked at this man, seeing his earnestness, and said, I'm going to choose this man to be my spokesman. You realize that Saul ended up writing the majority of the New Testament. This man's conversion is like no other. He's on his way to Damascus to take more captives. He has authority from the chief priests and the rulers. As he's on his way, just as he comes to the outskirts of Damascus, a brilliant light, far brighter than the sun, comes down upon him and knocks him to the ground. Everyone else who is with him, they likewise fall to the ground. He is blinded. He cannot see. He cannot open his eyes. And there is a conversation that takes place. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? This is Acts, the ninth chapter. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but you must get up, enter the city, and it will be told to you what you need to do. And he was led by the hand into the city. Now you find that in Acts, the ninth chapter. But this story is told and retold by Dr. Luke. In Acts, the 22nd chapter, verse 6, Then it happened to me while traveling and coming near Damascus about noon, Suddenly, out of heaven, a very bright light flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. Now, if you go to the next description of all of this, it's found in the 26th chapter of Acts. There is one added thing to this story that I think all of us will quickly recognize. In Acts 26, 
verse 14. Then all of us having fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What are the goads? The one driving the oxen would have a stick with a sharp point on it. And he would poke the oxen to get him to move. Have you ever felt the goad poking you of the, of the Holy Spirit? Come on, move. Well, there were also other goads. They would put sharp pointed sticks down low in the front of whatever it was that they were pulling. And if they began to loaf and the wagon would move forward, those sharp-pointed sticks would begin to hit them in the lower legs. Very painful. It would cause them to quickly move on and, and fill that collar and begin to pull again. Have you ever slacked off on the Holy Spirit? And he says, it's going to be painful. One of our group, a young man on mall, I ask you to pray for him. He texts me this week and said, Pastor, Jesus is not doing enough for me fast enough. I'm going back to the devil. And I'm asking him to do for me what God won't do. The devil has promised me he'll give me everything I want if I'll just serve him. So I've gone back to serve the devil. Now, can you imagine that God is going to let him do that? This week, I am praying that Anmal will feel the goad of the Holy Spirit poking his ribs. I pray that for any person who will turn back from following the Lord Jesus. Jesus is both kind, loving, and merciful, but he also will use the goad the sharp-pointed stick to urge us on. So now we have Jesus saying, I've been poking you, Saul, and you haven't been listening. The scriptures don't tell us how the Holy Spirit was poking him. I just know from my own experience that the Holy Spirit doesn't just come suddenly, unexpectedly. We don't become Christians just suddenly. There's a whole backup behind that where the Holy Spirit begins to reveal to us and create in our hearts a hunger for Jesus. And we can fight against that. And then the Holy Spirit will come and begin to poke and make us uncomfortable until finally our heart begins to cry out and say, you know what, I want to serve Jesus. Now it's funny, not in a laughing sort of way, but in a a strange way, often we respond to the poking of the Holy Spirit by becoming angry and depressed and discouraged. 
So when I came into the service today and there was a very somber attitude amongst all of us, I just said in my heart, Holy Spirit, have you been poking around? Yes. Because he knows where we have, if this be the case, not surrendered to him yet. And some of you are carrying on your backs a heavy burden. You've walked in unbelief this week. You have rebelled in some way. And these things make us very somber. We're not somber when God has worked out everything for us and we're rejoicing and the way is open before us. We're not somber then. We're rejoicing. Some of you know what your secret life is against Jesus. And you know when the Holy Spirit is with great tenderness, poking you with the goad. I pray for more and more of that in our hearts and lives, that we would be utterly committed and surrendered to Jesus and bold in testimony that his grace is sufficient for us, that he will carry us, that he will do what his word says he will do. Now, the issue at hand is, how does God, prepare Saul? How does Jesus prepare Saul to do what he wants him to do? Well, the first thing he did was flash the light around him so that he went blind. And so now he's going to sit for three days totally blind. Does he need to sit for three days blind? No, he doesn't. But Saul, like all of us, tend to procrastinate and struggle in our heart with, should I really make this change? I mean, imagine what's happened to Saul. He is totally Jewish legalism. And suddenly, the man he's been persecuting, the man he's been driving the disciples into death, this man has come to him and said, Saul, You are persecuting me, and it's not easy to do. The goad has been hitting you. Suddenly, his whole frame of reference has been utterly destroyed. He has to now put in place who this Messiah is that has spoken to him from the heavens. The most startling work you can begin to engage in is to understand who this Jesus is that speaks to us so boldly in his word and by his spirit and then believe him. Saul had to believe what Jesus said to him. And then he had to obey it. I looked up the word obey in the Greek. It's a very interesting word. The word obedience in the Greek means literally to hear, to hear, and then to place myself under what I have just heard. Rebellion is when I've heard God speak. I know what I should be doing, but I refuse to place myself under that word. Instead, I rebel. And I say, I'm going to do it my way. 
I'm not going to do it. It's too hard. One of the things that was said to me this last week was, Pastor, it is too hard to be a Christian. Jesus is a hard man. I want to tell you today, it is not hard to be a Christian. It is not hard to follow Jesus. It is hard to fight against the pricks of the Holy Spirit. It is hard to continually walk in disobedience to the divine revelation that God has spoken to us. It is hard to live with a guilty conscience. Do you have a guilty conscience today? Have you been resisting the promptings of the Holy Spirit saying, I'm not going to put myself under that? Have you resisted the Holy Spirit? That's what's hard. Following Jesus is easy. He said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Give you rest? Well, the simplest definition of rest is cessation. But tell me, how many of you last night rested in cessation? I didn't rest in cessation. Did you? Did you walk through your kitchen and just suddenly stop and say, okay, I'll cease moving now, and I'm going to rest here all night? No. No, you know where I rested last night? In my comfortable bed with my covers pulled up in a cold room. I love sleeping in a cold room with lots of covers. I slept in my bed. I rested in my bed. When he says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he's saying, I will give you my bed. I will be intimate with you. You may come and crawl in bed with me. That's what God is saying literally. It's not hard to serve this God who so loves us. He covers us with his grace, with his mercy. He doesn't expect us to rest out in the cold. He expects us to come into his bedroom. And that is, by the way, the root word for rest or cease. The root of that is bedroom. Well, I'm sure not going to go in the devil's bedroom and try to get some rest. And which of us has not gone to the devil's bedroom on more than one occasion, thinking we might get some rest there? Going to some kind of wickedness, some kind of sin against the Lord and thought, well, I'll just veg here for a while. I'll rest in the devil's bed. No, I don't want to rest in the devil's bed. I want to rest in the righteous presence of Jesus. Saul has to make that decision. Is he going to obey this word that has been spoken to him? And so for three days and three nights, he doesn't eat any food. He doesn't drink any water. All he's focused on 
and I can imagine it was almost like a computer in his mind with prophecies falling in place, was suddenly saying, that's what Isaiah meant. That's what Jeremiah meant. That's what David meant in the Psalms. Suddenly, everything began to coalesce in his mind as the Holy Spirit brought scripture after scripture, promise after promise to his mind, and things began to make sense And he began to understand this was the Messiah who came, and I've been fighting against this Messiah. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I would have probably wanted at least a year to mope and to feel guilty and to condemn myself. He didn't have any time to do that. God had an assignment for him. He had to be on his way. No delay. Now, please, may I say to you, let's look at these three accounts again, and then I want to draw out an incredible lesson. Chapter. Now, there was a certain man, a disciple, verse 10, at Damascus, Ananias by name. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias... And he said, Behold, I'm here, Lord. Ooh, wait a minute. Let's take a side trip just for a minute. Evidently, God had spoken to this man before because he recognized the Lord. If a voice spoke to you in the night, would you automatically say, Yes, Lord, your servant's listening? No, you'd only do that if you'd heard that voice before. Only if you knew the voice of God. I'm here, Lord. I'm at your disposal, Lord. What do you want? I'm here to serve you. The Lord said, having arisen, you must go to the street being called Straight and inquire in the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus, Saul by name. For behold, he is praying. And he saw a man in a vision. Ananias by name, having entered and having put a hand on him that he may see again. This is what the Lord has said. I prepared the way. Go take care of my servant Saul. And Ananias argues with the Lord. I have to make a confession. I have often not liked what the Lord has done, and I have argued with him. It's not wise to argue with the Lord. But we get caught in our feelings and in what we know, what we think we know, and we begin to argue with God. Remember John the Baptist? Jesus comes to be baptized, and what does John do? The Scripture says he tried to deter him. He tried to stand in the way of Jesus and say, Jesus, you can't do that. Have you in any way tried to tell Jesus what he can and can't do? And if you copped an attitude because he's not doing it your way? Lord, I've heard from many concerning this man, how much evil he did to your holy ones in Jerusalem. And in this place, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all the ones calling on your name. The Lord said to him, you must go. 
because this man is an instrument of choice for me to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And I will show him how many things it is necessary for him to suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias goes. And you look in verse 17. Brother Saul, the Lord has sent me. I like that he called him brother. That was strictly by faith. He hadn't talked to him yet. He goes to this enemy, and based on the word of God, he says, Brother, Brother Saul, the Lord has sent me, the one having been manifest to you on the way on which you were coming, in order that you may see again and may be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He saw again and arose, baptized. He was not baptized with water. In the scriptures, it's very clear. Jesus was baptized by his death. In Romans, the sixth chapter, we are all invited to be baptized into Jesus Christ, into his death. That's not by water. Ritual baptism has a place, but Romans 6 is not speaking about water baptism. It's speaking about crucifixion. He arose baptized by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to look at another passage in Acts, verse 26. Acts, verse 26, chapter 26, verse 15. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But you must get up, stand on your feet. May I just stop and say this? Some of you need to get up. Some of you need to stand up and stop laying down in discouragement and unbelief. You need to stand up. You must get up and stand on your feet. Now I appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a minister and witness both of the things which you saw and of things which I will reveal to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the authority of Satan to God, to receive forgiveness of sins with reference to themselves and an inheritance among the ones having already been made holy by means of faith in me. Let's back up this word translated in most Bibles, forgive. In every instance, when it is in reference in the New Testament to sin, it is not used as pardon. Now please, if, if Brother Ed, which this would never happen, but if Brother Ed would become enraged at me, 
and he would do something that deeply hurt my heart. And I became convicted that I needed to forgive him for his offense. And so I come to the Lord and I forgive my brother Ed. Have I changed anything in Ed? No. I've changed something in me. So if God comes to you and he forgives you for your sin, has he done anything in you? No. He's done something in himself. He has pardoned your sin. And so most of the translators, like the NIV, King James Version, all of them are reformed in their beliefs. They're Calvinistic. And so they believe that you are pardoned even though another Greek word is used for pardon. This particular word means very clearly to remove, to create space between what is taken from you and put in another place. If I take my Bible off this desk and I put it behind me, I have removed it. If a husband divorces his wife, they no longer are together. They are separated. That's the word that is used in this case to receive removal of sins with reference to themselves. So Paul is to come and teach the gospel not that your sins are pardoned, even though that is part of the gospel, but to teach rather that your sin is removed from you. God does something in you and not just in him. So grace is what God extends, but grace doesn't leave me like it found me. It changes me. So the Lord is saying to Paul, I want you to turn them from darkness to light, from the authority of Satan to God, to receive removal of sins with reference to themselves and an inheritance among the ones having already been made holy by means of faith in me. So in other words, God is telling the Apostle Paul, I want you to go and move people from darkness to light, from being under the authority of the devil to being under the authority of God. Please, do you understand today? There are only two places of authority, darkness and light. You are never under your own authority. You are either under the authority of God or you are under the authority of the devil. There is no in-between. 
And the assignment that God is giving to Saul is to go turn people from that darkness and bring them into the light and to cause their sins to be removed from them. Now, I want to take you to the heart of this message in Acts, the 22nd chapter. Acts 22. I'm going to read in context so that you catch it. Verse 12, and Ananias, a certain godly man according to the law, being well spoken of by all the Jews dwelling there, After having come to me and having stood by, he said to me, Brother Saul, you must receive your sight again and look up. And at that very moment, I looked up at him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear a call out of his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what what you have seen and heard. And now why are you delaying? It's only been three days, Ananias. Give Saul a break. It's only been three days. For some of you, it's been three years. For some of you, it's been six years, seven years, ten years. Ananias would come to us and say, why are you delaying? Well, what is the delay about? Having arisen, you must baptize yourself now, and you wash away your sins Now, it's speaking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it's speaking about washing away your sins. He's saying, you do it. You baptize yourself with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is not going to come on passive people. We're not going to be in this worship service and someday the tongues of fire are just going to come down and we're going to all be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's fantasy world. That's not going to happen here. It's never happened anywhere. It did not happen in the upper room. The upper room people were not being passive. They were doing something very specific. They were washed of their sins. They washed themselves of their sins. How did they do it? The answer is right here in the scriptures. It says, why are you delaying? Having arisen, you must baptize yourself now. And you wash away your sins now. Having called on the name of the Lord in behalf of yourself. Sin is removed from our lives, not by trying hard. Sin is removed as we call on the name of the Lord, and we ask him, please, open for me the gates of righteousness. 
as we turn away from the sin that has held us captive by being on our face before God and calling on the name of the Lord and saying, Lord God of heaven, deliver me. Deliver me. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit by calling upon the name of the Lord on our behalf. Now let me describe how this begins to happen historically and is happening now in my life and in some of your lives. The cry begins to go up from our hearts. It doesn't seem to come from us. It seems to come out of the very center of our being as suddenly we're hungry for the word. We can't get enough of reading the scriptures. That's the Holy Spirit bringing the goad, poking, come, read. And you say, why am I doing this? You're being called by the Spirit to do it. And as you read the word, your heart begins to go out toward God. And you begin to cry out to him, open for me the gates of righteousness. And you begin to see the sin of your life. You begin to see the wickedness of your spirit like you've never seen it before. And you begin to cry out to God and say, oh God, remove this wickedness from me. There are two crisis points in salvation. The first is when we see the filth of our lives, the drunkenness, the lies, the adultery, the fornication, the bitterness, the anger. We see the ugliness of our heart as the Holy Spirit reveals that to us as we listen to the preaching of the word. And a crisis comes where we say, how can I put away my sin? And by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, that sin is broken. The sin is broken. We're washed and we're made clean. It's called conversion. It's called being born from above. It's a crisis where we say, I'm going to go to hell if I don't change my behavior. I can't continue to walk like this in the presence of Almighty God. That's the first crisis. But then comes a second crisis. And that second crisis comes as I see the absence of the Holy Spirit in my life, the absence of the power of the Holy Spirit to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to live without even the carnal nature attacking me. When I begin to see how close I am to the edge and how easily I could slip back into that wickedness of my earlier life. The lust rises up. The lust for money. The lust for success. That lust begins to rise up in our hearts and we see it and we say, if I let myself go that way, I'm going back into my sin and I'm going to be lost. And a great cry begins to rise in your heart that says, Oh God, purify my soul. Remove from me this carnal nature. Baptize me in the fullness of your Holy Spirit. 
It comes as we cry out in the name of the Lord. And we ask him, will you come and will you deal with my heart? The Pentecost baptism came because all of the people gathered together and were of one accord praying in every revival that I have ever read about historically, and I've read about hundreds of them. In every case, there were people crying out in the name of the Lord, asking him to come and work a revival, to pour out his presence. Without that committed prayer rising up in our own hearts, God will not move. I want, more than life itself, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But I want the Holy Spirit and not the Kundalini Spirit. What is the Kundalini Spirit? It's the spirit that operates in Buddhism, working all kinds of miracles. It was the spirit that I saw in what was supposed to be a revival up in Canada, where I saw men and women rolling on the floor, barking like dogs, laughing. I saw miracles happening. I saw people healed. And I saw people hurt. I saw a woman touched by the pastor. She fell backwards. They had to call the ambulance because she had split her head open and had a serious concussion. I don't believe Holy Spirit does those kinds of things. Nowhere in Scripture do we find people breaking their head open because the Holy Spirit came. I saw people jerking, jerking. And for them, that was a sign that prestige, the Holy Spirit was on them. I saw the same thing upstairs one night when a man came to preach on the coming of the Holy Spirit and he told them that gold dust would fall from the ceilings. My question was, guys, if gold dust is going to fall from the ceiling, why don't you just put out sheets and collect it and you can pay the bills with it? They didn't like that. There is a kundalini spirit that operates in pagan religions like Buddhism, and it tries to very carefully mimic the Holy Spirit. Wesley said, if a man is jerking, go minister to him. It's a sign that he is resisting the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not come first with signs and wonders. The Holy Spirit comes first with deep, heartbroken conviction of sin. That's what it says in John. The sign of the Holy Spirit will be conviction of sin. Revivals always in the past that have moved great numbers into the kingdom of God have always been revivals of conviction of sin, repentance, confession. With it, miracles occurred. Healings occurred. But quickly you can tell the difference between the Holy Spirit and the Kundalini Spirit because the Kundalini Spirit is an unclean spirit. 
demon spirits are always unclean by definition. One woman who went to a famous faith healer who was a phony, she went, she was desperately ill, she was terminal. She wanted more than anything in the world to be healed. And so she went up, the faith healer laid hands on her. She was instantly healed. But with the healing came the removal of all love for Jesus. She went home and she dove right back into her wickedness. Had no interest in church. Had no interest in prayer. Had no interest in the word but she was healed. The testimony was she finally got on her face before Jesus. And she said, Lord, would you return my sickness if that's what it takes for me to once more be one with you? And instantly the sickness returned. She died soon after that but it was a glorious parting, praising the name of Jesus, worshiping Jesus. Please don't hear me saying that faith healing is false. I'm saying that some faith healing is out of that kundalini spirit. I'm not interested in those spirits. I'm going to test the spirits according to the word of God. And the test I'm going to apply to that spirit is, do you name the name of Jesus as your Lord? And does this spirit convict me of my sin and cause me to repent and go even deeper with Jesus? I cannot pray for you and have you receive the Holy Spirit. Each of us is going to have to pray and call on the name of the Lord Jesus because he gives his spirit in the measure he decides to give it. The Holy Spirit is granted according to the will of Jesus, not according to my will. It is the will of Jesus that we all be filled with the Holy Spirit. The scriptures are very clear about that. It's very clear that we cannot do the work of the gospel without the infilling of the Holy Spirit. He told his church, you wait in Jerusalem for the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the gift I'm going to send to you. They waited, and in a few short years had turned the world upside down by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, perhaps. You're happy the way you are. And you don't want any more of Jesus. I'm not. I need much more of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to give God no rest, day or night. I am calling on the name of the Lord for the power and the presence and the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. It's clear 
in this passage that I've shared with you that we, that we must cry out for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And as we are asking for the Holy Spirit, we ask him to break the power of every wicked thing in our hearts. We ask for the putting away of all sin. There is a work of preparation that must be done in our lives and in our hearts. In the Welsh revival, the cry was, Bend me, O God. Bend me. The cry was answered. And he bent them back into the form of Adam before the fall. He restored them. So as we ask for the coming of the Holy Spirit, we must also cry out, open the gates of righteousness. We must be prepared to leave behind anything that is questionable in our behavior. If the Holy Spirit has raised a check in your heart, or if he's told you to stop doing something, or to stop going somewhere, or to stop speaking in this manner, then that's the issue you have to cry out to the Lord over and ask, please, would you come and remove that from my heart? Would you come and work that work of grace in my spirit? Would you come with the power of your Holy Spirit and fill me as you did at Pentecost? Will you obey the word that I've spoken from the scriptures today? Will you come under it and submit to the word of God and cry out in the name of the Lord? It will change our it will change our hearts. It'll change this church. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit, saith the Lord. Lord, I thank you. And I wait upon you, for you are my deliverer. And I call upon you. I call in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Prepare us for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Prepare us as a congregation to do the work you've called us to do. Lord, send the resources, the people, the power. Open the doors for the proclamation of your gospel, for the sharing of your gospel. Let the words we speak be like like fire, igniting the hearts of those who hear to say, I must know this Jesus. Lord, turn our hearts. Turn our hearts from the darkness to the light. Lord, thank you. Would you bless your people today? I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Come join us at nationalprayerchapel.com. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to Present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Presence of His glory.